Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. There's some straight talk in Mark 8, 27 through 38, through the end of the chapter. This is the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. From this point on, everything in the life of Christ now points toward Jerusalem, toward betrayal, the cross, and the resurrection. In the first eight chapters, primarily, Jesus Christ has been the servant ruler. Now he will become the ruler who serves. He is moving and changing the direction and the distinction of his ministry. And he gives some very straight talk in these last moments before he begins moving toward Jerusalem. He is somewhere on the road between Caesarea Philippi, and he is going to ask some questions. And there, first of all, is some straight talk about Jesus himself in verses 27 through 33. He came on the road, and he asked them two questions. This was exam time. Verse 28, And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. Jesus had asked them the question, Who do people say that I am? You have been out among the people. You've heard what they are feeling. You know what they're thinking. Who do the people, that, what does the common man think about me? I guess this was Jesus' way of doing a CNN poll. What do they think about me? How are people feeling about me out there? What do they think? Who do they think I am? And they came up with three answers. Basically what they said was, boy, Jesus, everybody thinks you're wonderful. I think every pastor hears that the first week that they pastor a church. After that, it all goes downhill. But for Jesus, everybody thought he was wonderful. Now, they thought he was one of three people. They had come to one of three conclusions. Some said that he was John. They may have felt that way because of the power of his preaching. Others felt that he was Elijah. They may have come to that conclusion because of the ability of Jesus to lead by the example in his prayer life. Then a third group thought that he might have been one of the prophets that could have been because of his pathos, his heart, his compassion. They had come to the conclusion that he was John or Elijah or one of the prophets. Now, Jesus asked a second question. Okay, that's what they think. Who do you say I am? And in verse 29, Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The emphasis is on Christ. Thou art. You are the Christ. Now, they did not all respond. Only Peter answered for them in this answer. Even though they knew the answer, Peter is the one that responds here. In Matthew's gospel, there is recorded an additional answer. For Jesus answers the response of Simon Peter. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter said, you're the Christ. You are the one that Israel has been looking for. Christ is the word for the Messiah or the anointed one of God. You are the one that Israel has been waiting for since the time of David. Now, they had a misinterpretation of what that meant. 
For they had come to believe that Messiah was going to be a political and a military leader. That he was going to ride in on a white horse and he was going to take over and he was going to reunite the kingdom. And that Jerusalem was going to become the religious and political center of the earth. They believed that Messiah was going to establish the perfect reign of God. And in the middle of that confession that Peter makes, Jesus comes to verse 30 and he says, Don't you tell anybody you know that. He rebuked them. Okay, you know that, but keep it to yourself. Why? Because Jesus also had on the fringes those who were critical of him, those who were skeptical of him, and he did not want a confrontation with them at this time. There would be a confrontation, but he wanted it on his terms. And so he gives them some straight talk about who he is. He affirms to them that he is, in fact, the Christ. Then there's some straight talk about death. Verses 31 through 33, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. The time had come for Jesus to give them some straight talk about his death and to make very clear to them that he was going to be the suffering Messiah. He was not going to be a political Messiah. He was not going to be a philosophical Messiah. He was a suffering Savior. And he comes to make it very clear to them that the Son of Man is going to die. This is a detailed outline of the end of his life. He was not going to be caught off guard by what happened. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him from the time that he turned his face toward Jerusalem until the resurrection. Nothing was going to catch him by surprise. But the reason he does this with the disciples is he doesn't want them to be caught by surprise either. Now, this lets you know that the disciples were good Baptists because uh, they didn't hear him. He gave them a clear explanation of what would happen, and then when it happened, they were amazed and they were in wonder, and they went back to fishing, and they gave up because they really didn't hear what Jesus was saying. They did not comprehend it. They did not understand it. When Jesus mentions the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, he is making an explicit reference to three groups in the Sanhedrin that would later reject him. This was the parliamentary law of the Hebrew people. He says those three groups are going to be the ringleaders in all of this event. Now he, does, he says four things in this passage about his death. First of all, he talks about the person who's going to die, the Son of Man. This was the favorite title that Jesus had for himself. It's a title that he drew out from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 where the Son of Man comes and brings the authority of heaven and earth together. He said the person that's going to die is the Son of Man, and that's me. Secondly, he said there's a principle about the death that he must suffer many things. You see, the cross was going to be the culmination of much suffering. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He said he must suffer many things and be rejected. Now that little phrase rejected means to fail to pass scrutiny. Jesus did not pass the examination that was given to him. 
the exam was given that he had to fulfill their concept of Messiah. And because he didn't fulfill their concept of Messiah, they refused to accept him as who he said he was. And their refusal led to his failure of their exam. And so he suffered many things and was thus rejected. The procedure that followed that was that he was killed. You and I need to understand something. Jesus Christ did not just die. He was killed. He was killed for our sins. He didn't just die on the cross. He must be killed. It was premeditated murder. It was malice. It was with the intent to kill the Son of Man. And then finally we see that there was a prophecy. For he says, and after three days rise again. One thing I like about Jesus, he never referred to his death without referring to his resurrection. Now the disciples didn't get it. They missed this part about the resurrection. But this is a clear prophecy of the resurrection. This will do away with all those bogus theories that say that Jesus really did not rise from the dead. Jesus said, I'm going to rise. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be as dead as dead can be. And I am going to rise. And it'll be three days that I'll do it. There was no ambiguity about it. He said, there's some things you need to understand about my death. But one of the things that you need to understand about my death is that I am going to rise again. Third thing that we see is some straight talk about Satan. Some straight talk about Satan. Verse 32, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now the language of this particular text implies that Peter came before Jesus with an air of superiority. That he kind of pulled Jesus off to the side and rebuked him. And said, now, Lord, you know, you know, I mean, after all, you just heard it come out of my mouth, that I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But after all, if you go start talking about this death and resurrection thing and talking about all of this stuff, you're going to lose your credibility. Do you know why Jesus rebuked Peter? It's because he heard in Simon Peter the voice of the serpent in the wilderness, which said... You don't have to go to the cross to solve the problems of man. Oh, Jesus, don't, don't do it that way. Don't do it. There was demonic doctrine in what Peter said. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to. Don't talk about suffering. Don't talk about the cross. Like, don't talk about, those things are not good, Jesus. People won't like that. That's, that's gory and that's morbid. Don't, don't talk about blood. Don't talk about sacrifice. You, you go and we all know you're Messiah. We all know that, that you're the Christ. We all know who you are. But let's get this stuff behind us. And the text really implies that the disciples were standing off on a side going, that's right, Peter, you tell him. He doesn't have to do that because, boy, if he does that, then we're in trouble. They were in agreement with Simon Peter, although he was the spokesman at this point. They were in agreement with him, and there are two things that I see as a result of this on straight talk about Satan. First of all, you need to beware of the allies of Satan. Satan has his allies. Now, we don't have the time to do a study tonight, but Satan has a counterfeit kingdom that runs right alongside the kingdom of God. In Revelation, uh, chapter 13, verses 2 and 4, Satan has people who worship him. In 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, Satan has doctrine. 
In Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, Satan has a gospel. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, Satan has his own prophets. Satan has allies. And you and I need to beware because just as Satan was able to influence Simon Peter to try to get him one of the closest ones in Jesus' inner circle, to try to say one more time to him, you don't have to go by way of the cross. He sometimes uses people in the church to divert us from God's will. Satan has his allies because sometimes he does not come as a wicked and evil and perverse serpent. Sometimes he appears as an angel of light. He gives an appearance that he's given wise counsel. And here's what will happen. Satan can use well-meaning believers to divert us from the road that God sets us on. I've seen it. Some young person says, well, I believe in my heart that God's called me to missions. And somebody come along and say, why waste your life going overseas with those people? They'll never respond to you. I mean, look at Adonair Judson. He gave his whole life to go in a mission field, and yet only 35 people in his entire career ever came to Christ. Why would you want to waste your life? Surely there's a better way. Surely you could stay here and you wouldn't have to sacrifice. You, you wouldn't have to leave the comforts of home. You see, Satan has his allies, and we can become an ally of Satan not by promoting evil, but by in any way to suggesting to somebody that they do less than what God demands. We must be careful that we do not tell people to do less than what God tells them to do. The allies of Satan. And Jesus recognized another voice in the voice of Simon Peter, and that was the one that he had heard in the wilderness. Secondly, they're not only the allies of Satan, but they're the attacks of Satan. Jesus responded and he rebuked. In fact, his rebuke was so strong here. He never gave a rebuke like this to his disciples, but he gave one here. William Law says of Satan, he never slumbers or sleeps. He never grows weary. He never relents. He never abandons hope. He deals blows alike at childhood weaknesses, youth's inexperience, man's strength, and the totterings of age. Satan wants us to avoid the cross. The cross is that one thing that reminds Satan of his defeat. He does, want, does not want us to preach about it. He doesn't want us to talk about it. He doesn't want us to live in the shadow of it. If there were a book that I would recommend that you read, and it's a difficult book to find, but just one you ought to read, it's a book called The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. Roy Hessian talks about living in light of Calvary what it means to follow God at all costs. You and I need to be aware that there are attacks of Satan, and one of his attacks is that you can serve God without giving your all, that you don't have to do it the way God says, that you don't have to go as far as God's Word says, that you can come up with a point of compromise, and to that spirit, Jesus says today what he said to Simon Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Beware, lest you and I become allies and align ourselves with the powers of darkness that would tell people that it's okay to compromise, that there isn't a need to lay your life on the altar. Thirdly, 
Fourthly, there's straight talk about the discipleship, verses 34 through 38. Verse 34, he deals with our lifestyle. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There are two aspects of this discipleship that I want to deal with before we go to the third one, and I want to kind of concentrate on them together. First of all, there must be a denial of self. This is a decision of the will. There must be self-denial, a denial of self, a choosing of God over self. Now, he says that in verse 34. Deny yourself. A Roman general was having a council with his officers, and they were talking about a strategic position that they needed to take. And one of the high-ranking officers said to the Roman general, we can take that position, and it won't cost us but a few men. And the Roman general turned to that officer and said, Are you willing to be one of the few? You see, there has to be that willingness on our part that we are willing to deny ourselves. It may cost us. It may cost us our lives. But we are willing to deny ourselves for the cause of Christ, to say no to ourselves to put our interests and our wants and our ease and our comfort and our self-seeking behind us. You see, discipleship is not the second stage of Christianity. It is Christianity. It is what following God is all about. To deny means to disavow any connection with. To disavow any connection with. Have you denied yourself? Do you find yourself always struggling with this? Boy, I'd really like that for myself. Things we want for ourselves, things we desire for ourselves. You see, some of us take denying of self kind of like the Catholics do with Lent. We give up something, but we don't really give it up because after a period of time, we can get it back. See, we're about that some ways. You say, boy, I'm going to deny myself. I'm not going to get that. I'll wait until the next pay period. That's not self-denial. That's not laying our life on the altar for God. Denial of self is to say no to yourself so that you can say yes to the will of God. Howard Budd in his book said, It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, and can go it alone. But that feeling is basic dishonesty. I cannot go it alone. I am dependent on God for my very next breath. Pride is the idolatrous worship of self, and that is the national religion of hell itself. The denial of self. Secondly, there is a desire for service. There must be a desire for service. He uses this little phrase, take up your cross. Well, we have glamorized the cross We've made it into jewelry and rings and necklaces and we've polished it up and it's made out of gold and out of silver and out of brass and, and we've really made the cross an attractive instrument, but that's not what it was. The cross was not glamorized at the time of Christ. The cross was gruesome. It is said that the Phoenicians discovered the method of crucifixion by nailing rats to a wall and watching them weasel around and the life ebb out of them. 
And they came up with the idea there is no better way to make a man suffer for his crime than to nail him to something. The cross is gruesome. When Jesus says to take up your cross, he's not talking about headaches. He's not talking about having to live with a black and white television. He's not talking about having to drive your car for another year or put up with your neighbors who never put their trash in the garbage can and the dogs always get in it in the middle of the night. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about that which you must pay because of your following Jesus. Taking up the cross is in direct proportion to discipleship, to obedience to God. Taking up the cross is that price that you pay because of your relationship to following Jesus. It is when you choose suffering over ease and denial over self. That is the taking up of the cross. And then he says, follow me. Not only take up your cross, but follow me, obey me. That is choosing dependence over independence. That we choose to follow God instead of following our own desires. Now, these three phrases in the Greek are in the present tense. That simply means keep on denying yourself, keep on taking up your cross, and keep on following me. There's never a point in our lives where we can say, well, I've taken up my cross, that's all I ever have to do. It is a day. Paul said, I die daily. Jesus said in another passage, take up your cross daily. This is not a decision of a moment. This is the decision of a lifetime, the taking up of the cross. And then thirdly, there's a devotion to sovereignty. Look at verse 35. A devotion to sovereignty. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, by verse 35, I want to ask you to write six words. There are six words that explain verse 35. It is an undeniable, fundamental law of Scripture. There is no way to get around these six words. They explain verse 35. Simply this, losers are keepers and keepers are losers. Those who lose their life, save it and keep it. Those who keep their life, lose it. Losers are keepers. Keepers are losers. This is undeniable. And we find an illustration from the life of Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul? He was a nobody. He was somebody in the Jewish faith. He was a great scholar. But to the world, Paul was a nobody. Historians say he was uh, very nearsighted and stoop-shouldered and short of stature, not very impressive to look at at all. Nothing about him would attract you to him. And he was very... Uh, not very well known outside of a small Jewish circle in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. One day he was brought before Nero, the ruler of the Roman Empire. Everybody knew Nero. There were coins that were fashioned with Nero's image on it. Everyone knew that Nero was the Roman emperor. He ruled the kingdoms of the world. That was then. But now? Well, now we name our sons... Paul, and we name our dogs Nero. You see, Paul lost his life 
but in losing it, he kept it. Nero kept his life for himself, but in keeping it, he lost it. You see, God always balances the books by those who are willing to lose so that they can keep, and by those who keep and ultimately lose. There is a devotion to sovereignty here. God has given us a life to spend it, not to keep it. And if we approach life on the basis of what is going to be comfortable and easy and secure for me, then we, in effect, lose our lives. We may build barns and bigger barns. We may build houses and lands and, and acquire possessions. But in the process, we lose our life by investing our life only in this world. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Can't get him into the kingdom of heaven. And verse 36 is asking a serious question. What's more valuable, a soul or this world? You see, long after this world is gone, your soul is still going to be in existence, either in heaven or in hell. Now, why is your soul more valuable than all the things you can possess in this world? There are three reasons. First of all, it's more valuable because of the person that you are. It's more valuable because of the person that you could become for evil. And it's more valuable because of the person that you could become for good. Who you are, what you could become for evil, and what you could become for good. That's why Satan does not wrestle over financial institutions and over businesses and companies. Satan wrestles for the souls of men because what we are and what we can become, either for good or evil, is of utmost importance because he knows, as well as we understand, that this world is passing away, but the soul of men is going to abide forever, either in heaven or in hell. And so that places the value on the soul. And so the Scripture says, Therefore he that does the will of God abides forever. Three statements that you can't forget. Number one, no one ever gained the whole world. No one ever will. No one ever gained the whole world. No one ever will. Now, you'll find all kind of people that are spending their lives trying to gain and possess and hold on to more and more and more. But in reality, the richest man in this town tonight is a pauper in comparison to somebody else in another town. I mean, how many millions and millions and millions of dollars do you have to have before you gain the whole world? A lot more than a million. A lot more than a million. You see, there are more millionaires in America than any other nation in the world. And it's rising incredibly. And yet, we are of all people miserable because we have bought the lie that we can gain the whole world. You can't gain the whole world. You are one doctor's report away from losing everything you've got. You can't gain it all. You can't buy health. You cannot buy happiness. You cannot buy security. You cannot buy peace of mind. It's not for sale. So nobody ever gained the whole world. Secondly, what you gain, you can't keep. And we just talked about that just a second ago. What you gain, you can't keep. You can't take it with you. 
You can have the nicest casket that anybody in this town can provide for you, but there's just so much you can get in there, and it's usually just you. Well, if you get it, you can't keep it. Your kids are going to fight over it, argue about it, sue one another over it. So even if you get it, you can't keep it. Now let me give you a little test to take so you can find out how rich you are. And this is an important test for all of us to take tonight. Here's how to determine how rich you are. Take an inventory of your life. Find out what you have that money can't buy and death cannot take away and that's how rich you are. It does not matter what your checkbook balance says right now. You are only as rich as what money can't buy and death cannot take away. And you see, that means that there are some people in this room that will never have much in the eyes of this world, but they are rich in the things of God. They understand about the things of God because what they have built their life into, money can't buy and death can't take it away from them. You can accumulate a lot of things, but the bottom line for what you gain and what you really keep is that which money can't buy and death cannot take away. Thirdly, the third statement is, if you could gain it and if you could keep it, it would not satisfy you. If you could gain it and you could keep it, it would not satisfy you. Now here's what's happened to us. We have come to sacrifice honor for profit, principle for popularity, eternal for the temporal, and eternity for the moment. And we have two choices. If we choose ourselves, we lose. If we choose Christ, we live. If you choose yourself tonight, you're going to lose. Now, you can take that to whatever bank you want to. If you choose yourself and your desires and your wants and your needs and your agenda tonight, you will lose it. But if you choose Christ, you'll live, both now and in eternity. God's not any man's debtor, folks. He always pays up in due time. And Jesus said, whatever you give up for me, I'll give you a hundredfold back. Now, that may not show up in your financial statement, but it'll show up in the kingdom of God. It will show up in the mansion that he builds for you and is right now building for you for you to possess one day. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, you would have thought he was talking about September 1992, wouldn't you? The Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 180 years after the death of King Charlemagne, they opened up his tomb. King Charlemagne had possessed a great deal. He had been very successful 
as far as history would record his life. And in opening up his tomb, they found the king, 180 years after he died, seated on the throne that he had reigned and sat on. His crown was still on his head, now just a skull. His hand was in his lap, and in his lap rested a copy of the Scriptures. And the fingers that were now nothing but bones, the index finger was pointed at one verse and resting where those who found him could see it. And the verse was, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.